Uh, my family and I look forward to uh, the trek up north every uh, May at the end of the school year. We go up to Rock Mountain Bible Camp and spend some time there. Um, so we're really, really glad to be here. We're going to be looking at Genesis uh, chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, open to Genesis. And one of the things that the Bible gives us is a biblical world and life view, right? The, the Bible gives us a way of understanding the world and interacting with the big questions of life. Now, everybody, every single human being uh, has a worldview, right? Everybody, whether it's your neighbor, whether it's a coworker, whether it's you, whether you're Muslim, uh, whether you don't believe in anything at all, whether you've been a Christian in the church for a long time, every single human being has a worldview. Every single one of us has to ask and answer the big questions of life, such as, uh, why am I here? What's wrong with the world? What's going to make it right? What do I have to hope for? Uh, Worldviews are like noses. Everyone has them. You don't always see it. And the, the question is not whether or not you have one, but who has the right one? Right? Everybody has an interpretive framework. The question is whether or not your interpretive framework is the right one. And the Bible gives us a beautiful worldview. Uh, the Bible gives us more satisfying and in-depth and challenging questions and answers than any other belief system. And what we see in the book of Genesis is that it shows us a God who is both transcendent and imminent. Right? Genesis 1 shows us God's transcendence, that he is apart and distinct from the creative order and upholds it with the power of his word. And then in Genesis 2, he shows us that this same God is also intimate and active in our world. He speaks and communes and walks and talks with his creatures. Genesis 3 shows us that even though the the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, were in a great relationship with this God, they rebelled against him. They disobeyed his law and his command, which plunged all of humanity into a state of sin and misery, which is where we find ourselves now. Genesis 3 shows us sort of the, the religious roots of rebellion, that it's against God, and it disrupts everything. And Genesis 4 shows us the, resu- the ongoing results of sin in the world, its extent and its depth. And there's a lot going on this, in this passage. There's a lot of darkness. It gets really bad. I mean, sibling rivalry that goes out of hand and toxic masculinity thousands of years before the term was invented, braggadoche, uh, gangsterism, and Lamech. There's all sorts of things going on uh, in this dark, dark passage, but there are beautiful rays of hope. And what Genesis 4 shows us is that by faith, God grants favor to the unfavorable. By faith, God grants favor to the unfavorable. So look with me in Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 1, and we'll be reading the entire chapter. Now Adam Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? 
Then why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the oath. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Arad, and Arad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ada bore Jabal, who was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and harp. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is God's word. Father God, we desire your favor so much, your smile, your approval, your job well done. And what we deeply need is that. But so often we seek your approval from other creatures instead of you, the creator and redeemer. Uh, We look to promotions, pleasure, parents, uh, productivity, to give us the stamp of approval that only the righteousness of your son Jesus can give us. Would you open our eyes to see our own sin in this text and our ears to hear your promises? Uh, Open our minds to comprehend this passage, our hearts to understand its grace. And strengthen our wills to do what it commands. We pray this in Christ's name for his sake. Amen. So there is a lot going on in this passage. We have uh, fratricide. We have jealousy, bitterness, envy, anger. uh, The development of technology and innovation. All sorts of things are going on. So to better understand what's happening at the heart of Genesis 4... We're going to look to two other passages in the Bible. Two brief sentences, one from Hebrew 11 and one from 1 John 3, which was our New Testament reading. And the reason why we do that is because the Bible 
interprets itself. You've maybe gotten into a disagreement with somebody about the Bible, and you try to argue a point or make a point, and they say, oh, that's just your interpretation. Or maybe you've thought that yourself. You've been trying to understand the Bible. There's a lot in here. And you think, well, who's to say whether or not I have the right interpretation? How am I supposed to deal with this? Um, It's a complicated problem, but there's actually a beautiful solution uh, in that the Bible is self-authenticating. It's self-interpreting. See, the problem with, with the defense, anytime somebody says, that's just your interpretation, it sounds really intellectual, and it it kind of strings you as a gotcha, but it misses the point, because interpretations are like worldviews. And remember, I said everybody has a worldview. The question is not whether or not you have one, but it's whether you have the right thing, the right one. And the, the same thing is true for interpretations. Everybody has their own interpretation. To say that's your interpretation doesn't really advance in a, a disagreement or an argument. It simply sidesteps the real issue, which is who has the right interpretation. That's the real question. And one of the beautiful things that the Bible shows us is that it interprets itself. And the reasoning goes like this. If the Bible really is God's word, and if the God of the Bible is true, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good, and he has spoken clearly and authoritatively to us in the scriptures, then there can't be anything outside the Bible which authenticates it. The Bible authenticates itself. It's kind of like, you know how Wikipedia is always so self-referential? Like, maybe you've played Seven Degrees of Kevin Bacon in Wikipedia, where you start at any random Wikipedia page and see if you can get to Kevin Bacon in seven clicks. It's like an updated version. The the Bible's like that, except for on an an infinitely better scale. That's a really poor analogy. But all the, the passages and all the stories and all the teachings are intimately connected to everything else. And so that's why we look at different passages to understand other passages. It's because the Bible is internally hyperlinked, if you will. And so when we look at Hebrews 11 and 1 John 3, we read two very simple statements about our passage this morning. Hebrews 11:4 says this. It says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. And 1 John 3.11 says this, For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil, and his brothers were righteous. See, what Hebrews 11 and 1 John 3 show us is that Cain and Abel have a fundamentally different heart orientation towards God. Abel is interacting with God via faith. He is believing in God's promises as the way to be right in right relationship with God. Whereas Cain isn't focused on God and his promises. Cain is busy comparing himself jealously to his brother. He's operating by sight and not by faith. And it can be really tempting upon a first reading of this passage to think like, okay, well, Abel brings uh, an animal and the animal is slaughtered and a sacrifice and there's blood spilled. And Hebrews says, you know, without the remission, without the spilling of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And Cain just brings vegetables. So that's the difference between their two offerings. But that's not actually the case because the offering described here in Hebrew is a mincha, which is just a fellowship offering. And it could be either grains or an animal. 
So it's actually something deeper. And even though we're not giving the specific details as to the standard that Cain and Abel were held to, we do know that Abel was received by God because of his faith, and Cain wasn't. And faith is not some sort of leap in the dark, right? Faith is not some sort of old-school Disney movie, Jiminy Cricket, when you wish upon a star, all your dreams come true. Faith is actually a very... Uh, rigorous, intellectual, incredibly involved volitional task. It involves our minds and our wills to act upon reality itself. Operating by faith doesn't mean that somehow we're disconnected from the world. Operating faith means that we believe in the invisible reality, which is revealed to us in God's word, as the things that dictates visible reality is what's going on. Everybody operates by faith. Right, when you try to balance your checkbook, does anybody have, ch- I don't know if anybody has checkbooks anymore. Maybe some of you do. But when you try to balance your checkbook or you, you, pray, you pay your electric bill and, and you use basic mathematics, you're dabbling in the realm of faith. Right? There's an invisible reality which governs the visible world. There are, are unseen things that have practical, tangible consequences. One and one plus two. And $100 in your bank account minus $300 from an overdraft equals negative 200. There is an unseen reality. Or if you play a musical instrument, pick your favorite composer that you like listening to or, or your band. When you listen to music, you are dabbling in the world of faith, as it were. There's an unseen reality, music theory, that governs a, a seen or heard a, a experience. Right? And, and so faith and theology and what the Bible reveals is sort of the physics of the soul. Right? That what God says is good and true is good and true. And that what he says is beautiful is beautiful. And that what he says is right is right. And that what he says is ugly is ugly. And that regardless of what the immediate senses tell us, when we step back and consider these things, we'll say, all right, I'm going to go along with God and his promises, even if I don't fully understand it in the moment. That doesn't mean checking out. That doesn't mean putting, you know, turning your brain on mute and just operating like a zombie. Uh, The opposite is true. It means engaging rigorously. And it is by faith that God grants his favor to the unfavorable. Uh, Favoritism is a really nasty, nasty thing, and it's all over this passage. Right before Natasha and I, uh, right before Tasha gave birth to our oldest son, we wanted to go to family counseling to sort of figure out some dynamics in in our own nuclear family, she and I, and how we relate to an extended family. Um, And it's actually really helpful. There are nodal events in family life that sort of the gears of your family open up for a minute, and it makes it easier to make changes like birth or death or marriage and whatnot. And so he said, let's, okay, let's take advantage of this. And so we went to counseling, and the very first thing the counselor, very first question he asked was, he, he looked straight at us and said, who's the favorite in your family? Very first question. He wasn't joking. That was his first diagnostic question. Who's the favorite in your family? Make no n- mistake, Cain is the favorite in this family. Cain is the favorite in this family. We see this in a number of ways. First, by virtue of his birth, all right, look at verse 1. When Eve gives birth, she says, 
The text says, she bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Praise and celebration when Cain is born. Now look at when Abel was born in verse 2. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Cain is defined from his birth in relation to his brother, not on his own terms. But if that's not bad enough, if it's not bad enough that he's a mommy's boy, he's also daddy's little helper because he takes up the family business too. If you just go up a little bit to Genesis 3.23, God is exiling Adam and Eve from the garden, and it says this. It says, The Lord God sent him, that is Adam, out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And then when we're introduced to Cain in verse 2, it says Cain is a worker of the ground. Same profession. He's taking up the family business, but not Abel. Abel is a farmer. I'm sorry, Abel is is a shepherd. It says Abel was a keeper of sheep. Stinky, dirty, unimportant, out in the hinterlands, wandering around the pastures for days at a time, separated physically from his family, whereas Cain would have been close at, at hand on the farmstead. And if that is not bad enough, What really seals the deal is that Cain's name is mentioned 16 times in this unit. All of chapter 4 is one narrative unit. Cain's name is mentioned 16 times. Abel's name is only mentioned 8 times. Cain is by clear the favorite, and it has noxious effects. He rises up and murders his brother. And what Genesis 4 is trying to show us is that the rebellion that started in Genesis 3 is now an inborn feature of humanity. Sin is not a bug, it's a feature. And we see lots of parallels with this. Just like God showed up to Adam and Eve in chapter 3 and says, Where are you? What have you done? He shows up to Cain in chapter 4 and says, Cain, where's Abel? What have you done? But unlike Adam and Eve, who had to be talked into their sin by the serpent, Cain couldn't be talked out of his sin by God himself. Things are getting pretty bad. And whereas the curse of Adam and Eve rested on the ground, now the ground that has received Abel's blood curses Cain himself. Things are getting worse and worse and worse. And part of what's fermenting this ugliness, or part of the way that we see this ugliness fermenting is favoritism. It's favoritism. Maybe your uh, brother was the star pupil growing up. He's the one that went to med school and really had a successful career. Sharp mind, clear in everything he does, has really hit it off, and you just didn't have that. And so all your life, even to this day, you still, he- you still hear you know, little remarks from your parents, like, why can't you be more like your brother? Uh, or your sister was a star athlete, attractive, capable, socially connected, really is able to put her best foot forward, has a competitive edge that has taken her further than anybody else in your family. And you don't have that. You're not as coordinated, not as self-confident. And all your life you have been living in the shadow of your sister. Or maybe you're the favorite in your family. And all of your life, you've been snubbing your nose at your siblings, thinking about how better you are than everybody else, how you've made all the right decisions, and they've made all the bad decisions. And it's really turned you into a grade-A jerk. Regardless, regardless of what the circumstances are, and these circumstances are bad. The circumstances are always significant, but they're never determinative. 
The circumstances of our lives are always significant. They're important parts of our story, but they're never determinative. The favoritism that was playing out in the family system here really did ferment into a horrible disaster with Cain. But Cain still had to make the choice and the decision. It can be very hard for us sometimes, those of us that are parents, those of you that are more experienced with parenting, as we see the effects of our own sin and the sin of our children play out and think, why is this child walking with the Lord and this one isn't? And if I had done this differently, maybe this would have happened. And you think, am I the only one? Are we the only ones who have to deal with this sort of heartache? What Genesis 4 shows us is that actually from the very beginning, families have been driving themselves into the ditch. And God has been pulling us out. Each family, each and every time. Here's a family who knew God intimately. They walked with him in the garden. They spoke with him face to face. They would have had memories of their sin being exposed and then covered by God himself with sacrificial garments. And yet, by the time we get to the end of chapter 4, Eve is in such distress that she can't help mention Abel and Cain in the same breath. One murdered, one perpetually exiled from the family. Friends, God is in the business of pulling families out of the ditches that we drive them into. And it is by faith, it is by faith that God grants favor to the unfavorable. It could be very easy for here, us to sit back and look at Cain and say, like, oh, goodness, well, thank goodness I'm not a murderer. You know, like the Pharisee in Jesus' parable in Luke, like, thank goodness, God, that I'm not like X, Y, Z. But the seed of every sin rests in every human heart. That's the point of Genesis 4. And so even though uh, our own behaviors may be different in kind, they're not different in quality. Right? The same covetousness, the same jealousy, the same sort of need to succeed by putting other people down rests in our hearts. And just like Abel's blood cried out against Cain, our own sins cry out against us. And that's a significant situation to be in. It's so significant, one commentator remarks about the cry of Abel's blood this way. He says, Because man is made in God's image, homicide must be avenged. Here, Abel's blood is pictured as crying to God for vengeance, or sa'ak in Hebrew. The cry is the desperate cry of men without food, as in Genesis 41.55, as those expected to die, as in Exodus 14.10, or oppressed by their enemies in Judges 4.3. It is the scream for help of a woman being raped, as in Deuteronomy 22.24. Sa'ak is the plea to God of the victims of injustice. The law, the prophets, and the Psalms unite with narratives like this to assert that God does hear his people's desperate cries for help. And Abel's blood would continue to cry out. That cry for justice would echo down through the generations of Adam's sinful race. It's the cry that haunts us in our own sin when we meet God in his justice. And that cry would be met, but it would be met in such a way that Adam never would have suspected, nor Eve could have saw coming, nor Abel could have dreamed of, nor even Cain could have asked for. The way that this cry was satisfied is that there would be another brother that would be raised up from the line of Seth, who was to replace 
Abel. And he would come, and he would walk this earth, and he would come not to bring judgment for what this cry deserves, but to bear the judgment. Jesus would come not to increase the results of sin to a 70-70-fold, but to ratchet them down. Right? When Jesus is interacting with Peter, Peter comes to him and says, Jesus, when my brother sins against me, how many times should I forgive him in a day? Seven times? And Jesus says, no, I tell you, but 77 times. He's reversing the curse that Lamech ratcheted up, the heightening of sin. And he does that not by shedding blood, but having his own blood shed. So that by faith, God brings, grants favor to the unfavorable, which is us. By faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. A blood that speaks better than the blood of Abel because it cries out not for justice and punishment of those who have shed it, but for the insane justice of forgiveness of those who cling to it. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you uh, so much for this very real picture of a human family and human sin and misery and of your forgiveness, Lord. We thank you that you grant favor by faith to us who are unfavorable people. Lord, many of us, uh, not, not many of us, everybody has a family, and many of us have had very hard families, whether ones that we're in now, ones we grew up with, ones that we're afraid to talk about, ones that still direct our steps to the day. And Lord, even though the circumstances of our lives are incredibly significant, they shape us, they wound us. They're never determinative. Thank you for giving us a new brother, the elder brother of Jesus Christ, who invites us into a new and better family, one where healing can occur and jealousy can dissipate and anger can be turned into self-sacrifice and forgiveness. Lord, we thank you for all this, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.